welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. In March, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross testified before the House Ways and Means Committee where he was asked about a potential question on the 2020 census asking whether residents are U.S. citizens. Department of Justice, as you know, initiated the request for inclusion of the, the citizenship question. We have been talking on the phone and received written correspondence from quite a lot of parties on both sides of that question. But despite Ross's testimony, emails reveal that Ross was working to add a citizenship question to the census months before the Justice Department's formal request in December of 2017. These contradictions are at the center of several lawsuits challenging the addition of a citizenship question. And now the Supreme Court has blocked the plaintiffs from taking Ross's deposition. Joining me is Greg Starr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. Greg, we've discussed the question of whether the president can be disposed many times, but what's the argument over whether a cabinet secretary can be deposed when the trial judge and the Second Circuit approved the deposition of Ross? Well, June, uh, cabinet secretaries generally can't be deposed, uh, not because they're not relevant to a case, but because they are uh, cabinet officials who are very busy and, and courts generally only allow such a deposition in an extraordinary case. The question here is really whether this is an extraordinary case given the testimony that you played there and the strong suggestions that the reasons for including the citizenship question were not the ones that Secretary Ross uh, put forward during that congressional testimony. The order from the court here was unsigned, and there's no explanation of the reasoning, but it takes five justices. So could this be an attempt by the court to avoid revealing a five-to-four split in this first politically charged decision since the addition of new justice Brett Kavanaugh? Yeah, it, it certainly has that feel to it. Um, and that's in part because this is kind of an, an awkward compromise that they came out with. Yes, they did say you can't depose Wilbur Ross, uh, but they didn't uh, go further and say, and oh, by the way, his testimony is not relevant to your case at all. They didn't explicitly, for example, say you can't call him uh, as a trial witness. Um, And in addition, the court refused to block the deposition of the acting assistant attorney general who is in charge of civil rights, a guy named John Gore. Um, The the plaintiffs, the states and and groups that are suing want to ask him what he knows about the the reasons behind uh, the decision to include the, the, the citizenship question. Uh, so we may well have another fight that comes up to the Supreme Court uh, that, that talks more specifically or that deals more directly with both whether uh, Mr. Gore's testimony is relevant and what is it the plaintiffs are going to have to show ultimately to win their case and, and get the question removed from the, uh, from the, the, the uh, census. Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch would have gone further. Tell us about their dissent. Yeah, essentially what they said was, 
there's no reason to uh, make a distinction between Wilbur Ross and John Gore. Uh, and uh, the thing that would have made sense, given that it seems like the court is likely to limit the scope of this case, would have been to essentially stop everything. So right now we're in a situation where the case is still going forward and there may be a trial in a couple of weeks. And Justice Gorsuch writing for the pair uh, basically said, look, we should have gone further and made it clear uh, that we need to stop this matter until the court can uh, take up all these issues and, and issue a definitive ruling. Greg, the Justice Department called this decision of the court a win for protecting the rights of the executive branch. Does it augur rulings to come, perhaps regarding President Trump? Yeah, it might. Uh, you know, this case has always felt uh, to me a lot like uh, the case involving the, the travel ban, where the question was, were you going to look behind the, the wording of what, what the, the executive branch put out and look at the motives of, in that case, the president, and in this case, the commerce secretary? And in that case, and, and potentially in this case, the court seems to be saying, you know, we're not going to second guess this administration when they put forward reasons, even if there's, you know, a lot of suggestions that those aren't the real reasons, we're going to take their, their reasons at face value uh, and let them put, put forward their preferred policies. On a sad note, Greg, retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court, says she's been diagnosed with dementia. Tell us about her legacy. Remind us. Yeah, well, she, of course, was the first woman on the Supreme Court. Uh, she uh, you know, carved out a niche for herself on the court as uh, the swing justice. She uh, cast a, a huge vote in 1992 to reaffirm abortion rights that uh, was a big disappointment to the conservatives who were behind her nomination by President Ronald Reagan, uh, and she's also just kind of been a you know a symbol of women's rights and and the things that women can do. She she has a very no nonsense uh, nature to her, a very matter of fact nature to her. She grew up on a on a ranch in in Arizona. Uh, she famously when she had breast cancer in in uh, the 1980s didn't miss any time on the Supreme Court bench and then she later advised Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg about how to <laughs> handle chemotherapy and not miss any time on on the court uh, so she's certainly a, a, you know a heroine and, a, and as Chief Justice John Roberts said a, a towering figure in American history and has she been very active in her retirement until now she had been, not in the last year or so, uh, so much, but but uh, in she retired in 2006. She's been very uh, active, in, particularly in civic education. She uh, founded a program called iCivics, which uh, has some online games and, and, and materials that teach uh, middle school and high school students about civics. And that was in her letter. That was what she stressed is that that work of getting getting Americans knowledgeable and active in, in civic affairs uh, is crucial. And she very much hopes that will continue, uh, even though she's no longer able to take part in it. And I understand. I didn't know that Supreme, retired Supreme Court justices still had offices. And she gave her office to retired Justice Anthony Kennedy? She did. She did. That was the subject of an AP story earlier this week. That was one of the symbols, uh, or one, of, one of the signals that she was was stepping uh, stepping back. Um, uh, yeah. So certainly, an era has passed at the Supreme Court without her having chambers there. All right. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Store. 
The trial over whether Harvard discriminated against Asian-American applicants is now in its second week as District Judge Allison Burroughs attempts to create as full a record as possible for a case that's likely to end up at the Supreme Court. Joining me is Julie Park, a professor at the University of Maryland College of Education and author of the book Race on Campus. Julie, the plaintiff's lawyer said in his opening statement that affirmative action wasn't on trial, but the plaintiffs want to eliminate all considerations of race in college admissions. So how do you view this lawsuit? Yeah, <laughs> given, you know, the goal of the lawsuit, I would say uh, really at the heart of it, they are putting affirmative action on trial, uh, very much so. Harvard says the percentage of Asian Americans admitted to the college has grown by 27% in the last eight years. The Asian Americans make up almost 23% of the year's freshman class. What is the strongest point you see Harvard presenting in its defense besides numbers? Yeah, uh, before I continue, I should give the disclosure that I uh, served as a consulting expert on this case on the side of Harvard. Um, I think the strongest point that they could make is that uh, affirmative action um, helps Asian Americans by opening the door to different types of Asian American applicants um, and also gives institutions the ability to look beyond just test scores and GPAs. The plaintiffs, the applicants who say they were unfairly denied admission, are not being called by their attorney to explain their position. How unusual is that in a civil case, and might the defense attorney call them? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure whether the defense plans to call them. Um, You know, I'm not a legal expert, so I can't speak to how common or uncommon that is. Uh, But it is interesting, you know, that the plaintiffs themselves um, wouldn't be called to testify. Let's try to put the suit into context. The use of race in college admissions has been under attack since the Supreme Court upheld affirmative action without quotas in Baki. Where does it stand now as far as the Supreme Court is concerned? Yeah, uh, the Supreme Court uh, has continued to affirm the legality of race-conscious admissions, and all that means in this context is just being able to understand a student's race ethnicity um, in assessing their application and their potential contribution to um, to the student body in terms of um, will they contribute to a sort of a diverse and um, vital student body. And so it's absolutely nothing like quotas. It's absolutely nothing like caps on any groups just because those things are illegal. Now, there was testimony today about Harvard also trying to maintain a so from the from the plaintiffs from trying to maintain a socioeconomic balance as well and the the uh, concept of legacies getting an extra step up and donors of you know the children of donors getting an extra step up in the admissions process came up how do you see that Yeah, legacy admissions are complicated. Um, Yeah, I think that they do potentially undermine equity um, and within college admissions. And so they should really be given a really hard look at, um, yeah, be really looked at um, with a critical eye. Um, But very much um, legacy admissions definitely is a different thing from affirmative action. If if the plaintiffs got their way, would it would the admissions process only be based on grades and you know scores in the SATs 
Um, they, I believe Harvard would continue to do, uh, and other institutions would be able to do some level of a holistic review where they could look at other contextual factors. They would very much still look at the essay or things like that. Um, but very much a student's race, a student's race, ethnicity is, you know, potentially a very big part of their life story, and they might not be able to access that information. So I think one writer in the New York Times even called it a potential uh, threat of censorship, right, if students aren't able to showcase, right, their ethnicity and their culture and how those experiences have potentially affected them. When I was looking at the the different kinds of evidence that have come in at the trial, uh, I noticed that they have what they seem to be attacking is one part of the analysis which focuses on the individual. So the interview, the student activities report, and that is there any question that that can be allowed in as part of the determination of whether or not to accept a student? Um, you know, I think it's just all sorts of the entire application is very much weighed and assessed in, um, you know, informing the admissions office's um, assessment of a student. So really, I think anything is fair game. All right. Well, this this trial is, is still going on, and it's going to be probably into another week at least. Thanks so much for joining us. That's Julie Park. She's a professor at the University of Maryland College of Education. Her book is called Race on Campus. Of those admitted to Harvard's new freshman class, about 12% are Latino, 16% African Americans, and a record high 23% are Asian Americans. The plaintiffs say that the Asian percentage should be at least 40%. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.